On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about a program that some people are proposing, which would be a national digital identity card. Everybody would have all their information, medical, driver's license, voting records, everything on one card the government would then control in a central database. Do you like this idea? I got to tell you, makes me really skittish. We'll discuss that one. We're also going to be talking about journalism because there is a push out in some corners that journalists should no longer be striving for objectivity, but telling the truth. They can be two different things. Do we agree with this idea? We'll talk to the public editor of the Toronto Star about this and the math curriculum. Is it going to work? Is it going to help? How is it going to help? How's it going to work? Well, we'll talk to the math guru to get her thoughts on this one. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There are those who across this country right now who are suggesting that we shouldn't let the COVID crisis go to waste. If we're going to go through these tough times, let's get something positive, their words, positive out of this. And so there are people who are suggesting that what we should be doing, and these are not just people, you know, like wingnut folks living in their basement. These are experts, quote, quote, experts. Um, suggesting that it's good time to implement something rather radical in terms of personal identification in this country, a digital identity program for all Canadians, which would mean right now anyway, that you would have something like a card in your wallet that contains all your information, your citizenship information, driver's license, medical records, um, anything, everything that you could imagine about you would be on one centralized card that goes into one centralized digital platform. Now, to some, this probably sounds very convenient and a great way to avoid fraud and do other positive things. To others, and including me, I'll be honest, it sounds uh, rather 1984-ish and fraught with all kinds of potential issues. Um, But what does my first guest think? Alan Mendelson is a guy we love bringing on here whenever we talk about things to do with the internet or privacy or digital stuff. He is a lawyer uh, with an expertise in the internet and online issues. He joins us now. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it as always. Scott, it's my pleasure to be on as always. I hope you and your family are safe and healthy during these times. And likewise to you as well. And we are. Thank you. Um, I do understand the concept behind this. Uh, we put all this stuff into one place and then you don't lose your license and we don't have identity fraud and, you know, you have your medical records nearby if you get into an accident and all this. Um, at the same time, there's a lot about this that makes me squeamish. When you hear about this, do you go, aha, about time, or do you share my views that a little reluctant to dive into this? Well, I do both to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I hate to be the middle of the road, not having an opinion type person. The problem is, is that I do have two separate opinions on the issue. Um, okay. the, fir- the first being that, you know, I do believe in the future, uh, at some point in the future, that everything is digitalized, is, is going to be digitalized anyway. There's, there will be no more paper, no more ID cards, no more anything. Um, and that it's, this sounds very sci-fi, but we're, you know, we're halfway there already, um, that everything will be digitized. And there's just no reason to have individual companies or governments or whatever keeping things separate and in paper form. And that is only a matter of time before everything's digitized. The problem is, is that do we trust any centralized system or any centralized government 
to keep all that information in one place? And I would agree with you at this point that the answer is absolutely not. And that's the problem, is that no one is, has any sort of the requirement for a digital, a fully digital centralized ID system is that the public trusts the, in the body, whether it's a government or a private organization, keeping that information. And the answer, whether it's a government or a private organization, for now is no. And so that, that's where we are, unfortunately. Well, and, and trust it would be the ultimate, this would be the ultimate test of trust, would it not? Because if you, if you are a supporter of the government in power at whatever time, you may say, oh, no, no, they're, they're fine, they're good, they're benign, this would just be to help us. But if it's a government that you strongly disagree with, you would probably feel otherwise. And I mean, if, if people don't believe me when I say that, look, if you believed that Stephen Harper was a horrible, dictatorial, <laughs> megalomaniacal maniac, I'm pretty sure you would not be comfortable with having all your information in the hands of his government and vice versa. If you believe the same that Justin Trudeau is a buffoon or is like pushing us towards Castro Cuban style politics, you probably don't trust him. You're, you're only as good with this as the government is in office that you agree with. I, I agree with that point, but I would even take it one step further in the sense that even if you are a liberal voter, and even if you support the government generally, and full disclosure, and anyone with Google can find out my connections to the current government in power, and the fact, I'll freely admit, everyone, you know, like I said, it's easy enough to find out my support for the current government. But even though I agree with the government's policies right now, the current government's policies, I don't trust the current government's ability to handle such a program and to handle such information. So it's even further than what you're suggesting. And a general distrust of government, whether you agree with their particular policies or not, as to whether a program like this can be handled. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alan, we were just before, we were talking about whether or not you trust the government per se as a government. That, that's one part of this. But the secondary part of this is do we trust the government, even if we're not talking politically, to be able to protect this information? Because if suddenly everyone's information is in one place, it would be just a beautiful place for hackers to start directing their attention at. Do we believe they could protect us? Well, I would argue as a general population, the answer is probably not. I mean, the everyone has any number of stories about the inability of this of the government, the Canadian government and the Canadian, let's not call it the Canadian government, let's call it the Canadian bureaucracy in general. And it's very outdated technological systems. I mean, the, the stories in the, that are widely reported of the last three years of government inabilities, of government, government inability to pay employees because their, their electronic payment system was a disaster for one example, and any other number of, you know, issues related to technology um, at the governmental level. So, you know, I, I think anyone who follows these issues at all knows sort of how behind the eight ball government in general is with related as, re as it relates to their own use of technology. And, you know, that is going to 
immediately put in people's minds, well, look, the government can't even pay their employees properly. How are they going to keep all my information safe? Yeah. And every time, and in this piece that I read that got me thinking about this whole topic, one of the things is, well, no, absolutely. We'll protect you. It'll be safe. We can make it unhackable. And maybe like, maybe you share this. Every time I hear someone say we can make it un whatever, it comes back to that old line, the Titanic was unsinkable. Um, Nothing, nothing is unhackable. You can make it really hard, I suppose. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, as soon as you vow that this is unhackable, it's almost like it's a giant target for someone to say, okay, I'll show you. Um, No No doubt, you know, and one only has to look at corporations who have essentially unlimited resources. In some ways, their resources are much more unlimited than the federal government who have their systems hacked all the time. And corporations who are in a much better position to, you know, quickly and efficiently handle their IT system compared to the bureaucracy of the federal, federal government. So, you know, everyone gets hacked and it's much easier to hack any current government system right now. Alan, I mean, you're a lawyer and you deal with stuff like this around privacy and things like that. Would there be any recourse if I was a citizen and they said, you have to do this. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't want to give you all my information into one place. Would we have any recourse or if it was a law that was passed, we would just have to do it? Well, you know, the, the problem is the law as it currently stands now. So we have two major federal pieces of legislation as it relates to privacy of personal information. Uh, PEPEDA, which is the act that governs collection of information in the private sector, and then something called the Privacy Act, which regulates collection of personal information in the public sector, i.e. government. And the Privacy Act is very specific in the sense that you still, the the government organization, whoever it is, should only be collecting personal information with the citizen's consent. However, it also says that um, if a a particular agency requires that personal information for its specific functions, well, then it doesn't need your consent to collect that information. So, for example... Uh, Revenue Canada is allowed to have information of, with respect to your finances and taxes and so forth because it's necessary for their particular function. They don't need your permission to have that information. So if a government agency is set up designed specifically to have some sort of national federal identification system, well, it would be allowed to have your personal information without your permission because it would be required for the functions of that organization. That's what the Privacy Act currently says. So in some ways, um, it would be... Now, there would be all sorts of court challenges and so forth, I am sure, um, but the way the Privacy Act currently reads and the way the law currently stands, it, it could probably be done. I only have a few seconds, but let me ask you this, because I, I absolutely believe that if this comes into play, I, and I, I, I say this sincerely, I absolutely believe that if this were to happen, we're only a few years away from some government telling us, well, you know what, the cards were great, uh, but they can still be lost and people can still imitate them or whatever else. The real way to do this is to put a little microchip into you with all your information, and then we can really prevent identity theft, and we can really help you with your medical stuff. Could you honestly not see that happening somewhere down the road? Well, maybe not to that effect, 
but already private technologies use fingerprints, exactly. and, fingerprints and retina scanners to secure your personal information. Anyone with an iPhone above a certain level knows that. So I don't see any barrier to that sort of technology um, being implemented on a much wider scale. It's a fascinating topic, which uh, we will be definitely talking about more because uh, we didn't have nearly enough time to get to everything today. Alan Mendelson, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great evening. You as well. And look, uh, make a little note somewhere. I may be long off the radio by the time this happens, but I absolutely believe the day is going to come that we do end up with the government telling us that we're supposed to get a little microchip or something put into us for our ID that you need to have. I absolutely, I absolutely believe that. And I'm not talking about a year or two necessarily, though maybe, but it's coming and make a little note that you heard it here and you may believe me, you may disbelieve me, but I'm telling you, it's coming. This is just the first little step towards that of ultimate eventuality. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We are in some crazy days in the world right now. You may have noticed that (laughs) if you haven't, I don't know where you've been. Um, And because things are so crazy, most people are relying on good, trustworthy journalism to inform them. And you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I would argue that there are more people right now than in many past years who are looking for, as I say, that reliable, credible information that's not necessarily from a blogger or something, but from somewhere they know that more often than not, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, they can trust to get right details. Uh, a month or so ago, we had someone on the show here, who a reporter whose job right now is simply reporting on COVID hoaxes. That's how prolific the bad information is out there, which is why people are coming to look for good information. But here's the thing. In the midst of all this, there's a really interesting story that is growing within the journalism community. And it's the position that objective journalism the idea of getting both sides of a story is not really as important as getting truth. Maybe we should just have people tell the truth as opposed to giving both sides of the story, which sounds ideal. Who wouldn't want truth? The problem, the difficulty is what is the truth and who decides what is the truth? Uh, You can read that piece in the New York Times came out this week about whether or not we should have always have both sides of the equation or just a preponderance of evidence leading us to a conclusion. I want to bring in Kathy English. She is the public editor. She has been the public editor of the Toronto Star for 13 years. That is a newer way of referring to someone as what was the ombudsman once upon a time. It's a much better sounding name because no one in the world knows what an ombudsman really is. Anyway, uh, for 13 years, she has been the public editor of the Toronto Star. She is going on to work as the chairman of the board of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. She joins us now. Kathy, thanks for doing this today. You're very welcome, Scott. Hi. And congratulations. I know you just wrote your final public editor column today. You're glad with how you went out? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I, that, that's a loaded question. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad to have the column done and uh, it, it'll be an interesting transition. Well, congratulations on doing it and on your next, uh, your next step. Uh, this, when I read this piece in the New York Times, and I've heard this to some degree or another before, it's such an interesting loaded question. Should we be in, should journalists, should journalism be striving for objectivity or striving for truth? What do you say? What's your prescription for this? Well, you know, I, I, in the journalism classes I've taught, in the columns I've written, I've said for 
forever that there's no such thing as objectivity in journalism. Um, it's a false god. It's not something we should hold up as our ideal. Journalism is the art of selection. In every um, decision we make as journalists, we bring who we are as people to it, you know, in deciding what stories we're going to cover, who we're going to talk to, uh, what we're going to use of all the information we gathered, what, what the first sentence is going to be. All of those are subjective decisions. So there is no such thing as objectivity, but what there is is fairness, um, trying to be fair to the facts and follow the evidence and the facts to the best available version of the truth. So does that argument then, and, and look, you're absolutely right about the fact that nobody can be purely objective. That is that is an impossibility. But does that mean that if the weight of evidence in something leans so heavily to one side that there's no need to include the other side? Or do we still include it but phrase it differently? Or what do we do with that? Well, I think, you know, getting the other side. I mean, certainly sometimes there are legal reasons to get the other side if if uh, and that's you know under Canada's responsible communication laws if journalism uh journalists make allegations of fact against someone um the law says that we have an obligation to go to that person and let them uh give their side so if, you know if we sort of say that somebody was involved in a big scam we have an obligation to 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 let them give their side but on issues, I mean, the climate change debate is, is the classic one that we, we use when we, we talk about the fact that there should not be false balance. If 97% of the world's scientists uh, say that climate change is a thing and, you know, it's man-made, um, that we contribute to it, then we don't need to have those three paragraphs at the end of a story that say, on the other hand, some scientists disagree. Uh, that's false balance. So on, on debates where, you know, there is strong evidence, strong, verifiable evidence, um, just to throw in that other side um, to say that we've been balanced just just doesn't make sense. And, mm. and that's a disservice to the truth. The, the flip side of that, I suppose, is that several months ago, um, Dr. Tam, Teresa Tam, was um, presumably using the weight of known evidence to suggest that we should keep our borders open and that we shouldn't wear masks. And those were positions that were taken based on the evidence. And today, both those views have been flipped. Now, if she had been a journalist, she going after truth or playing to the preponderance of truth, she would have been wrong on both of those. Well, you know, I think the pandemic has provided new challenges for both journalists and science because the science is evolving. And as the science evolves, the journalists are trying to follow the story. So we've all in all our newsrooms been faced with, you know, as new information emerges that could be, you know, diametrically opposed to what we learned last week. So it's been a very interesting process for both the public, um, for our readers, our, our audiences, um, journalists and scientists to, to, to try and make sense of this, um, particularly at a time when there's, as you said in your opening, there's so much misinformation um, out there around the pandemic. So, um, you know, when the chief medical officer of health says something, um, we can report it. Um, and perhaps there is scientific evidence that um might be used. But again, what journalists are always trying to do is weigh and, and, and determine um, the validity of the evidence. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Kathy, here's now where this gets really interesting to me and maybe to you and maybe to other people as well. We often hear people today talking about your truth. What's your truth? What's my truth? It's your truth. How does that then factor into when you're making a decision? Because your truth might be different from my truth. Where, if you're a journalist, does that fit into the equation? That's a great question. And I I think I've spent a a lot of the last few years thinking through that, um, particularly as uh, politics of the in the U.S. have created a, a far more polarized society. I come down on that. I really like the New York Times piece where he talked about um, the moral purpose of journalism. And I've always been able to define the moral purpose um, based on universal human rights, that we live in a democracy uh, that says that there are universal human rights, and which means that... Um, you know, there's not two sides to racism. Um, there's not two 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 sides to to basic questions of equality. Um, so yes, people can see things in different ways, uh, and you know, defining truth is a huge, big philosophical question, which is why I, I think it's better for journalists to talk about facts and facts that can be verified and and following the facts to the conclusions that they present. And, and I think that that point you just made, I, I agree with a thousand percent. I was a little more hazy on one of the comments uh, when, again, when you get into racism and morality and truth in the New York Times piece, where he said that every reporter not a, not opinion writer, but reporter should, if, if you believe someone is, I think the word he said here is uh, any politicians who traffic in racist stereotypes and language, however cleverly, that the reporter should call them out directly. Do we want our reporters, not our editor, not our opinion writers, but our, do we want our reporters offering their interpretations or opinions? Is that their role in 2020 to be making the judgments on whether someone is a racist or a sexist or a homophobe or whatever else? Right. Well, again, if we live in a society that says that equality is is a is our value, then anything that undermines equality should be called out and it should be called out with evidence by pointing out what the person said, by pointing out that that's not not aligned with the equality values um that we hold important. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's such a difficult one because the, the the thing you don't want to do, and I know because you, I'm sure you probably get a, I don't know how many letters and emails you get a day uh, that would accuse somebody of being biased or whatever else, because everybody who's ever worked in the in media has been accused of being biased. Of course. Um, you know, and, and I mean, how many do you get a day? Uh, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I can tell you specifically on bias, but certainly no, but- it, it, it's an ongoing concern. You know, bias, accuracy, fairness. Right. Uh, I, I, I have written in a column that, you know, I personally as a journalist, I, am, I have a bias towards equality. Mm. Um, and I think that that is built into our Canadian Charter of Rights. Um, and that is, so that's aligned with, with the values of, of my journalism. And I think for, with the, organiza- the journalism organization that I've worked for, for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem with that. I think that what we need to do is 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 be open and transparent and say this is where we come from. 
um, this is what we believe. We believe in equality. We believe in justice. Uh, we we don't see that there's two sides to racism or homophobia, not in a just society. Let me, let me and I wasn't going to go here, but it's an interesting, I think, um, sort of diversion here. We want our reporters, regardless of who they're for, to be telling truth and to be seen as neutral observers who then maybe can make these calls because they see something. Should reporters then be on social media offering opinions that someone may say, well, look, you already are biased on this side, so naturally you're going to think that about this person or that person. Should reporters be offering opinions on social media? Oh, Scott, that's such a huge, big debate in journalism <laughs> right now. Um, in every newsroom right now, it's having this debate and looking at their social media policies. You know, our social media policies were based around the old conflict of interest guidelines that says, you know, if I'm a journalist, I can't put a sign on my my house during an election campaign because that would indicate um, uh, where I stand on a political issue. I can't march in a parade because that would indicate where I stand on a political issue. I think we're, you know, <laughs> unfortunately I'm leaving, or maybe fortunately, at a time <laughs> when this debate is becoming very, very live and, and, and a need for a lot of, you know, in-depth discussion and talk with journalists and, and, and our community uh, of, of readers because, you know, is it fair to a journalist to say you can't march in a debate? Um, I know the Toronto Star are marching in a, in a um, parade. The Toronto Star, when the women's um, march happened following the election of Donald Trump, uh, we, you know, reminded everyone of our rules against um, marching in parades. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I've had to think about that, about what's fair as a human being, and can we separate out our journalism and our humanity? And, you know, what what are those lines there? And so I, I think we need a lot of debates of all these uh, about these issues, and I don't pretend to have all the answers right now because they are all um, li very live questions right now. You can read uh, Kathy's final column, which answers some of these things, by the way. Trustworthy journalism is an essential service that matters more than ever, is the headline on it. It's on the Star's website right now. Kathy, listen, I appreciate the time today. Congratulations on the final column and for the 13 years, and good luck going forward. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So earlier this week, uh, by now I am sure you're aware of this, earlier this week the provincial government announced during its daily briefing that it was going to be reviving, reformatting, redoing the elementary school math curriculum. We talked with Teresa Cascioli on Tuesday evening about one facet of it, which was the fact that they are introducing a financial literacy component which I, I, I can't see any downside to whatsoever. And I, haven't, I honestly haven't heard anybody anywhere say that's a bad idea. But what about the rest of the curriculum? What about the rest of the stuff that is in there? We always love having Vanessa Vicaria on here whenever we can. Uh, she is known as the math guru. That's her job title, but that's also an appropriate description for her. Uh, she joins us now. A lot of things about this curriculum that a lot of people are having a lot of different thoughts about. Um, mm. Let's start with the biggest thing. I think the biggest part about this, it's three words that nobody, I don't think, really knows exactly what it means, which is back to basics. Mm -hmm. What do you think back to basics means? Well, I'm really, really glad that you brought that up. Um, 
And I'm really glad that you pointed out that I don't think anyone knows what it means. You know, it sounds really reassuring to a lot of parents because one of the biggest complaints about the current curriculum is that parents feel really anxious about not being able to help kids with their homework. And they would really love to be able to do that. So I think that the solution in a lot of people's minds is to just go backwards to what parents learned. But I really want to start by saying going backwards is never the solution. You know, we come from a place where both you and I went through the old curriculum and many adults listening probably did as well. And I can name on one hand, you know, the number of adults I know that like math, feel confident in math, you know, and use math every day. So the basics approach that we are are considering going back to didn't work then, and it certainly won't work now. Now, what do we mean by back to basics? No one knows because it's very untransparent. You know, when these things are kind of released, they're just a bunch of bullet points on a page, and we really don't talk about how they're going to be implemented. But I think the government is trying to suggest that we need to, you know, focus more on memorization and on rote learning and on learning math facts all of which can be a good thing, but we certainly can't implement them in, a, in the way that we used to. Because again, that didn't work then, and kids have very different needs now. Well, I mean, surely there, every kid or almost every kid is going to have an iPhone in their hand today in their classroom, and it has a calculator. So on the one hand, you say, well, why does anyone need to know their times tables? Well, on the other that. hand... I mean, they do part- need to know their times tables. <laughs> Okay, but okay, so why? I mean, because again, that, yeah. that would be one of the arguments people would make sure. is you don't need to know it because it's right there. Why bother? Why should we need to know our times tables? Well, and I'm so glad you asked because I think there is a bit of a misconception between calculation and numeracy. So knowing your times tables isn't just about being able to rattle them off. It is a deep knowing. So for example, um, in grade 10, you need to factor. And factoring is all about being able to have a sense of what is divisible by something. So, for example, you have the number 100 and, you know, don't worry, we're not going to do too much math, but you have the number 100 and you quickly need to think of things that 100 divides by. You could pick up your calculator and just start going 100 divided by 1, 100 divided by 2, 100 divided by 3, but it's going to take way too long. You need to know what is 100 divisible by. Like, can you name two things right now? Could I name two things? Yeah, do it. Two things that 100 you know divides by. Uh, 10 and 25. Okay, amazing. That is why you need to know your times tables. A a lot of kids, I'm not kidding you, I have students in grade 12 calculus who would not be able to do that. Because wow. they do not yet. I can do grade 12 calculus. <laughs> well, let's not go that far. <laughs> but, but it is a skill. It's about knowing, right? So really understanding that you don't need, like for something like that, you don't have time to be picking up your calculator and you should just know those things. So that's one of the main, main reasons. And when we talk about the importance of math, forget calculus, pretend you weren't going to take high school math, but in everyday life, you really want to have a sense of what these numbers mean. So like something like percentages, again, Sure, we can calculate what 10% is of something. But if we also know that trick that you just need to move the decimal place over, you know, by one, one point, that really easily puts things in perspective. You can do things a lot faster that way. And when you're reading the newspaper or you're listening to politicians, you want to be able to have a sense of the numbers that they're talking about. And usually the numbers they're talking about are simply multiplication facts, percentages. That That's kind of the crux of it. They are not major, major concepts that are taught past elementary school, but you do need a sense of those things. You can't pick up a calculator anytime, you know, you're watching the, I mean, I guess you can, 
but it's not really necessary. So anyway, sorry, I'm rambling kind of. But no, no, but I, I've looked at it, Vanessa, I've looked at it all along, like the idea that we don't know basic math in our head or how to do basic times tables or addition tables or anything, yet we can grab a calculator. But to me, that's the equivalent of saying, all right, you don't have to know what each letter of the alphabet mm-hmm. sounds like to be able to read because you can get a book on tape. Yeah, well, you can, but you're way better ahead to be able to just know it and do it. Well, and, you know, I think we've talked about this on your show before that adults will proudly sort of say, oh, I was never a math person. You would never say, well, I was never a reading person, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. We have this. It's true. Of, like, literacy is important, but math literacy isn't. And that's not true. So we do need to be, you know, it's funny because the new curriculum, just going back to that, there is, you know, a lot of people are talking about the new emphasis on coding. So I think it's really cool. You know, that's great. Why not teach kids coding? A lot of jobs require it. And also it's cool. It kind of is a fun thing to learn. But we have to remember that the purpose of math class isn't to get everyone into an, a STEM job, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. That's not the point of math class. The point of math class is to enable kids to start thinking critically, to be able to be mathematically literate in this world. And to develop skills that will allow them to succeed, whether in a math career or not. And critical thinking and problem solving can be taken far beyond the math classroom. So we really need to, I think, focus on why math education is important and sort of start from there. And there's one other thing that I think is overlooked and maybe it's not in vogue or it's not as sexy today, but... You know, there is an element of discipline involved in having to sit there and learn your times tables. And and I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I mean, I'm not talking about that you have to know your times tables up to the hundreds, but to be able to multiply up to 10 times 10, just to sit there and learn that, I think there's some ba- some benefit to that. Well, I mean, yeah, and this, this goes into a whole other debate about homework and how much kids should have uh, sure. to do. Sure, sure. You know, and this is sort of why I say, too, I don't think a back-to-basics approach is the right thing to do because sure there is an element of discipline and and kids do need to learn that but you we have to recognize that kids learn differently not simply because you know well first it's, it's a different generation they are brought up differently they have different things around them they are used to screens you know we didn't even have those so there is a way to still instill discipline and you know those math facts without making them, I don't know about you, but in grade three, I had to get up in the middle of classroom on the carpet and say as many times tables, facts as I could within 30 seconds. And it was so panic inducing. You know, we have a lot of research now. We know how kids operate. We know that there's a lot more anxiety than there was before. So it doesn't make sense to go backwards and use those same techniques. However, many of those skills should be taught. But one thing the curriculum I find does not address is how. How are we going to teach these things? How are Mm. we going to train teachers in two months to all of a sudden be able to be confident with coding. That's that's the piece that's missing to me. Well, you mentioned confidence, and it's interesting because they did identify or they did point to the fact that one of the things they're going to be stressing here is a social and emotional component Mm -hmm. to try and build... Now, you've talked about on this show before, your background, how you got into becoming the math guru, that you, like me, uh, sucked at math once upon a time, and you figured it out. I never did. Um, But it's a confidence thing that if you believe, and a lot of people believe, I can't do math, and therefore it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that I can't do math. Uh, This, again, seems like, I don't know how they're going to bring it in, but it seems like it's a really positive idea. 
Well, I'm so glad you talked about this because you're one of the only people in my round of interviews that has mentioned it. And so there's a few things. So, so the first thing is, yes, this is my wheelhouse. I have a podcast called Math Therapy where I literally give adults therapy for their math traumas because math anxiety can be so traumatic. And we know how debilitating it is, so much so that math anxiety is now a diagnosable condition. So it is a thing. Now, it's interesting because I find that they are playing placing such little emphasis on this. I read through the documents, so I know social emotional learning is there, but they are more, you know, promoting the financial literacy and the coding and the job skills. So I think it's actually, I got super excited. I was like, wow, they're actually going to be tackling social emotional learning. Now, my issue is, again, how, like, this is a trained skill set. This is very different than a skill set of teaching math you know, dealing with math anxiety and social emotional learning and psychology and a holistic approach, that requires training. Not everyone can do that. It, it It's a very sensitive topic, right? You're dealing with students who have severe anxiety around it. So I like that it's being mentioned. But again, I always worry when we put bullet points on a page that sound really nice and don't talk about the implementation strategies. And I don't know about you, but you know, we are, we've all seen how hard teachers have worked, how much they've struggled this year. We don't know what school is going to even look like in September. There's going to be so many adjustments. How are they possibly going to learn how to code and also how to be like basically psychologists in two months, which they have off because it is their vacation time, which they've earned. That's well, awesome. and, and there's a professor at U of T who teaches, uh, she's a, an expert in teaching and math, and I am forgetting her name right now. We've, yeah. we've had her on the show before. I can't remember her name. Anyway, um, and she has talked about this is one of the huge issues, not just with students, that one of the reasons so many teachers are not good at math is A, because they never took it in university and now they have to teach it, but B, they don't have any confidence in math, but, which is very hard then to pass on confidence if you don't have it yourself to the kids. One of the top ways that math anxiety gets passed on to kids is through teachers. And this is not to blame the teachers because they do not get training. If you're an elementary teacher, you are not required to take math. They aren't trained properly to teach the math. They're not, I mean, I've spoken to groups of teachers, teacher trainees before, and it, I, yeah, I'm not kidding. It'll be like 90% of the class is not confident to walk into the math classroom. So again, I find this curious because just a year ago, we were talking about how, you know, the ministry was saying, okay, we need to focus more on training teachers. We're putting all this money into teaching. Remember that whole thing about how they were going to test? They still are. They're giving teachers a math test. Well, hold on a second. So you're going to do that, yet you're also going to throw even more math at them that they don't know in the middle of a worldwide pandemic when they've just been busting their butts trying to become now online teachers, which they are also not trained for. Like, do you see what I mean? Like, I feel like this is, has not been well thought out. It's a scramble, and to me, like not to get too, you know, in your face about it, but it seems like a distraction. From you know, there are some major issues that are not being tackled, and these seem like really nice, pretty band-aid solutions. Things that parents want to hear that make it seem like something's being done, but it it worries me honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I hope I hope this whole thing, especially about the social and emotional part, can work. And I'll tell you part of the reason you you touched on STEM. I mean, we have heard now for how many years that we're trying to get more girls to go into the STEM programs. This is a big push. Well, to me, the way you make that happen is not by telling girls, hey, go into STEM. You're, you've got to go into STEM. We need more girls in STEM. It's by creating that confidence, and then naturally they would go into STEM. You don't have to push them then. Well, I do. This is my area of specialty. You know, my master's was 
in math education with a focus on this exact topic and on, you know, what it is that we really need to work on. And it's funny you say that. We talk so much about how we need to push girls into STEM, but the truth is girls are interested in STEM. And as you said, a lot of it is about the lack of confidence, but also about us not creating environments in which they feel welcome. You know, us not dealing with the cultural container, you know, with the fact that you've never seen a movie with an intricate female character who likes math. Like, have you ever seen a cheerleader who likes math in any movie ever? You know, like we have a much wider context in which this problem sits. So again, saying stuff like, oh, I know, we'll just teach coding and girls will all of a sudden, or whoever, will all of a sudden be interested in STEM. That's not how it works. There is much more at play. And again, I really hope that we can recognize that. It does, it's, you know, the, the math, problem with math education is not a simple problem and it requires something more than a simple solution. One more thing, and we just have a couple more minutes here uh, that mm. I find, um, and we, we talked, as I said earlier this week with Teresa Cascioli about the financial literacy part of this. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I, one thing I am encouraged by, I, I really believe, and maybe it's just personal experience, that teaching math as an ethereal concept mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. way more difficult than saying, here is something that is practical that you can visualize that has an application. And, you know, if you're going to teach kids, you know, math as far as, a, you know, keeping score in a sport or, but in this case, math as money, uh, is this not a good idea then? Because yeah. you can now, there's, there's a practical application that you can see how it works and it makes sense to kids then. Well, I, completely. So I 100% agree. I think that there has been a push for financial literacy for a very long time. And you can see, again, like, I like to think of this in broad, broad strokes, like, it's adults need financial literacy. This is, again, how a lot of political decisions are made, a lot of personal decisions are made, how budgeting is done. You know, it affects our whole economy. It's super, super important. And I'm really, really glad they're going to start incorporating that early on. You know, we actually don't learn much about financial literacy until grade 11, which is, you know, it's, hey, we all know how compound interest works, right? Kids need to start saving when they're like eight years old if they want to be millionaires by the time they're 30. So it's super important. Again, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be super skeptical. I like it. I'm glad that it's being done. I want to know how it's going to be done because I'm going to remind everyone that as much as we hate the current curriculum right now, it was largely premised on the fact that we were going to help students learn how to solve problems and to think critically. And because it was never implemented properly, I don't think there was, you know, the right type of training given to teachers. It has been sort of a mess this whole time, right? Everyone's confused, but the the premise of it, like I imagine what those bullet points looks like, teaching problem solving skills, critical thinking skills. Doesn't that sound good? It must sound, it, it, it is good. On paper, it's really good. We want kids to have those skills. Same with financial skills. It looks great on paper. How are we doing that? Are we training teachers to be confident in that? How is that going to be passed on to the student? Those are the questions that I have. Well, we may not be seeing any movies with people who are cheerleaders who are into math, but we do know someone who is the lead singer of a band who is a woman who is into math, and we've just been talking to her. So it is possible. It's it all, is possible. Of course. of course. It is possible. Vanessa Vicaria, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for asking the greatest questions. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it.
Thanks for listening.